Well, I'm sure you've all heard by now of the death of Queen Elizabeth II on Thursday. One of my oldest friends uh, was a real Anglophile, and for years he had a huge portrait of the Queen in his living room. So I had to text him right away with my condolences and, of course, the words, God save the King. <clears throat> Elizabeth was the longest-serving monarch in modern world history. Her legacy, and I'm sure you've been reading about it, or it's hard to escape the news coverage of it. Her, her legacy is not merely the length of her reign. It's really the quality of her reign. Her family, of course, we know, was just like plagued by scandal. But Queen Elizabeth was different. She somehow managed to stay above and apart from all of that scandal and buffoonery that her progeny and siblings engaged in. Instead, as people have talked about her, they've noted that she was able to give an incredibly diverse nation and, in fact, a diverse commonwealth a real sense of unity and shared identity. Now, that in and of itself is remarkable, given how privileged she was. Here she, in her person, is giving the sense of unity to this, this vast array of people, and she is nothing like them. She didn't go to school like them. We know almost nothing about her private life, her, her likes, her dislikes. She was not particularly charismatic. It raises the question, how is it that someone who in every way was so uniquely and insurmountably different from her people, how is it that she was able to become a source of unity for them? Now, I, I raise this question not as an Anglophile or as a historian, I raise this question because unity is not something that we can take for granted any longer. Now, that's abundantly clear in our society, as, as you all know. Uh, uh, we, we live in a society that is polarized and divided to a degree not seen at least since the 1960s, and some suggest the 1850s. But it's not just society, is it? It's, it's the church. Parachurch ministries that used to cooperate together in ministry and in evangelism no longer speak to each other. Not because their doctrine or mission has changed, but because they disagree on how to respond to George Floyd's murder or the latest advice from the CDC. Local churches, including local churches in our area, have seen an influx of members or an exodus of members over the same issues. And even churches that were largely spared such divisions, churches like ours, can still sometimes feel tense, fragile, as, as if we know that the, that the specter of faction or escalating disagreement is there. And so we need to be cautious with one another. That's the context 
in which we begin this morning a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a series, unlike any that I've done before, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians starting here the first Sunday after Labor Day, and it's going to take us all the way to the Sunday before Memorial Day. We haven't published all of that, but between now and the end of May, whenever I'm in the pulpit, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. So a bit of an experiment for me and for you if you've been around for a while listening to the way I move through books more quickly. Not, not this year. I've titled this series, United We Stand. The church in Corinth was a lot like churches in America today, kind of a lot like our church. Wealthy, diverse, gifted in lots of different ways, and strongly opinionated. The, to tell you a little bit about this church that this letter was written to, the, the Apostle Paul started this church on his second missionary journey in the spring of AD 50. And he stayed with them for about a year and a half. He was helped. He didn't do it by himself. There were other people there helping him, like like Timothy or Silas, like Priscilla and Aquila. After he left, after about a year and a half, other important teachers came through, people like Peter and Apollos. They would make contributions to the work. This was not a church that lacked in good teaching. But about three years after he started the church, Paul, or after he left the church, I should say, about three years after he left, Paul received a letter from the Christians in Corinth. And he also received some visits. Some people brought some personal reports. And what he learned from that letter and those personal reports was that all was not well in Corinth. The church was divided by factions disagreements over over doctrine and and practice, and frankly, divided because of moral compromise. And so in the spring of AD 54, while he's busy planting and growing the church in Ephesus, he sits down and he writes them a letter. Now, the letter that we call 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter he wrote to the Corinthians. We don't have the first letter. So 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that he wrote to them. We don't have the third letter. Um, So 1 and 2 Corinthians are really 2 and 4 Corinthians, but these are the two letters of the four that we know that he wrote that the church and the Holy Spirit decided to preserve for us, that we needed to hear for our help and our encouragement. Paul's goal in writing this letter to the Corinthians was their unity. The question for them and for us is where is that unity found? So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pews around us, uh, sitting, sitting around you, this is found on page 1011, 1011. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look just at the opening verses his greeting and his thanksgiving. So the first nine verses. Allow me to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours, Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, this letter begins, like almost all the New Testament letters begins, it begins with a standard greeting, identifying Paul as the author, along with his co-worker Sosthenes. We don't really know for sure who he is, but it's possible that he was the former leader of the synagogue in Corinth, who has now converted to Christ. You can read about that in, 1 Corinthians, uh, in, in Acts chapter 18. So he identifies who's writing, and then he identifies the recipient. It's the church of God in Corinth. And then we get the, the initial prayer, which he always does at the beginning of his letters, initial prayer. And this is probably the most common way that he prayed for the churches. He prayed for grace and peace from God. But then you'll notice, instead of launching into the problem that prompts the letter, he actually spends some time telling them why he's so thankful for them. He, he, he tells them, Wow, guys, I'm really thankful for you. You guys are great. Now, I don't think this is just flattery. Paul is going to have some hard things to say to them. So up front, he wants to win a hearing. Uh, it's, it's a classic introduction, right? He's trying to win a hearing from them. But even in winning that hearing, he's already begun to make his argument. His argument to them and his argument, I trust, to us. And, and it boils down to this. We'll put it on the screen. It's what we have in common that really matters. It's what we have in common that really matters. No matter what you hear me say later, and it might be hard as he gets deeper into the letter, don't forget this. It's what we have in common that really matters. Paul identifies four things in these verses that we're going to consider. And as we do, I want you to consider where you find your sense of unity here at Henson Baptist Church. All right. Well, the first thing Paul does is he emphasizes our common calling, our common calling. Look again at verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. So right away, Paul highlights what God has done both for him and for them, right? They've been called. He was called as an apostle. They have been called as saints. You see that there in verse 2, as holy ones, literally, uh, which is just a way of explaining, well, what does it mean that you've been sanctified in Christ Jesus? To be sanctified is to be set apart as holy. They have been set apart just as he has been set apart as an apostle. They have been set apart as holy to God for, for his use, for, for his service. 
How, how did this, this calling come? Well, well, it was accomplished, you see, there in Jesus Christ, right? Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. And then in verse 2, those sanctified in Christ Jesus called as saints. What does it mean to be called? Well, if you're a parent, you, do, you, you like call all the time. You call your kids in from playing outside. You call your kids to the dining room for, for dinner. And if, if your kids are anything like mine, they kind of evaluate your call. <laughs> they listen to your call. And they think, well, that's interesting. <laughs> but I'm not that hungry, and I like playing my video game right now, so I think I'll just keep going. Or, that's interesting, but I'm really not interested in homework. I'd like to stay outside playing with my friends. And so they ignore our call. Our calls are, yes, invitations, please come do this, and kind of pleading. Uh, that's not God's call. God's call is not, uh, hey, would you like to do this? And it's not like a pleading, hey, would you please do this? No, God's call is the sovereign summons of the one who spoke and by speaking caused the universe to come into existence. When we think of the call of God in these verses, we're thinking about what theologians call the effectual call of God. What do we mean by the effectual call of God? It means that when God calls us to himself, he not only summons us, his call actually changes us. His call overcomes our natural resistance to him. His call changes our desires, gives us new desires for him that we did not have before. And his call then empowers us to respond and obey his voice. I, I think we're given a beautiful picture of this in John chapter 11, where, where Jesus calls to a dead man and says, Lazarus, come out. Clearly, Lazarus didn't do that under his own power. Jesus' very call gave Lazarus the power that he needed to respond to the call. We also see this in Paul's life. You can read about this in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus calls him from being a persecutor of the church into, into instead being a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. There's just no question how Paul's going to respond, because the very call of Christ changes him. Now, of course, the kind of service we give to God when he calls us to himself, when he sets us apart as holy for his use, the kind of service is going to vary. You know, Paul's an apostle. Not all of them are going to be apostles. But what all of us have in common is that we were, if we're Christians, we were called by God. It began with him. He took the initiative with us. He changed our hearts. He made us alive in Jesus Christ when we were dead in our sins. And the reality is, is his call continues to define our identity. We are saints, set apart for his service, not because we do really good things, 
but because of his sovereign, gracious, supernatural intervention in our lives, calling us to himself and changing us in the process. Christian, you are not a Christian because you're smarter than other people. Have you thought about that? You didn't, you didn't respond to the call because you're like smarter and more clever and you were able to figure it all out so that it made sense. And so you responded, but other people don't because they can't make sense of it. No, you're not a Christian because you're smarter than everyone else. You're also not a Christian because you're needier than everyone else. No, 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 you, you didn't respond because unlike everybody else who's got their lives together, you're really needed, so you needy, and so you really needed God. Now, that's not why you're a Christian. You're, you're not a Christian because you're humbler than everybody else. Yeah, they're, they're all out there in their pride, and they're saying no to God, but I'm, I was more humble. I could recognize my need, and so I responded. No, it's none of those things not because you're smarter or needier or humbler. You are a Christian, if you are a Christian, because God called you. And not just you, but Paul says, all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. The reality is without God's call, you would never have given Jesus a second thought. But because of God's call, you can't stop thinking about him. And your whole life has been changed. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're not sure if you're a Christian. And hearing me say this makes you wonder, well, how do I know whether I'm called or not? I mean, if God has to take the initiative, and he does, well, then what am I supposed to do? What can I do? How do I know? if God's called me? Well, the, the answer is right there in verse two. Who are the ones God has called? All those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But you say, doesn't he have to call me first? And I say, yes, he does. And so you say to me, well, then how do I know, I ha how do I know he has? And I say to you, call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. If he hasn't called you, you will never call on him. But if he has called you, oh, then you certainly will. So I say to you, if you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure you're a Christian, prove that he's called you by calling on the name of Jesus. Call out to him today, because he will not turn away any who turn to him. So what does it mean, then, to call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord? Well, it starts with admitting our need for a Savior. It means acknowledging that he's God and you're not God. And that because he's God, he's got a right to judge your life, and we know what that verdict is going to be. It's going to be guilty, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's where it starts, realizing you need a Savior and admitting that need. Second, it means recognizing that Jesus Christ did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus, the Son of God, put on human flesh, became a man, and then lived as a perfect man the life that we should have but didn't. 
Then he didn't take that life with him back to heaven and be all self-satisfied with himself. No, he offered his life then as a substitute for us, suffering the judgment that we deserve on the cross. So I need to first admit my need for a savior. I need to admit that Jesus did for me what I can't do for myself. And then third, it means submitting to Jesus as my master. He is master and I am not. You see, Jesus didn't just die for us. He got up from the grave and now sits at the right hand of God as Lord, King of the universe. Calling on him means more than just accepting his help when you need it. No, it means bending the knee to him as Lord. It means repenting of our sins, submitting to his claim on our lives. Friends, this is what it means to call on the name of Jesus. It means to repent of your pride, to give up your control, and to trust that God loved you best when he loved you through Christ on the cross and who now calls you to trust him and follow him with your whole life as long as you live. This is what it means to call on the name of the Lord. And if you have not done that, I would urge you to do that today. Call on him and so prove that he has called you. You might have more questions about this. This might not have made total sense to you. We'd love to talk to you about it more. You could come find me afterwards. We've got a Bible study that we do with folks. There are lots of people here that would like to talk to you about it. But please do not leave without considering what it means that Jesus is Lord that he has called you to submit to him and that your only hope is right there. As a church, our unity begins not with us, but with the gracious initiative of God. What matters is that each of us and all of us together who name the name of Jesus have a common calling. But then second, Paul highlights our common testimony. Let's pick it up in verse 3. He prays for them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul always, as I said, begins with a prayer for his readers. And this prayer for grace and peace in verse 3, as I said, is the most common of his prayers. But then he immediately dives in and tells them why they matter to him so much. Kind of why they're so special, why he's so thankful for them. Actually, in verses 4 to 9, we're given two different reasons And verses 4 to 7 give us the first reason that he's thankful for them. He's thankful for them because of the grace they've received from God in Christ. Do you see that there in verse 4? Because of that grace, he says in verse 6, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among them. What what, what is Paul talking about when, when he talks about the testimony about Christ? He's talking about the gospel. 
But the message that through Christ's death and resurrection, Christ forgives sinners like us and makes us new and alive with him and set apart for God. That's the testimony about Christ. Paul says that because of the grace that they've received through the gospel, the gospel testimony about Christ has been confirmed. Now, this is legal language. Um, We might translate it if we were thinking in it like a court of law setting, you could almost translate it as not, not confirmed, but corroborated or, or, or proven. In, in a court of law, a claim is corroborated by other witnesses who can confirm what the first witness said, or it's proven because evidence is entered into court. This is what Paul says has happened. The, the witness, though, that's been called to confirm the testimony about Jesus, the the witness is their changed lives. Paul says, you have been enriched in every way in Christ, but but especially in these spiritual gifts of speech and knowledge. You see that there in in verse 5, speech and knowledge that give evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence among you. In in fact, in in verse 7, he's going to go on to say that you don't like any spiritual gift that you need as you wait for Christ's return. You could almost think of it as like packing for a trip, right? I mean, I was in Africa for a month with Adrian, and it was a good thing that there were two of us, because as we tried to think about everything we need for this trip, we needed both of our carry-ons and both of our check bags. Actually, we took more than one each, all of our check bags, just to get everything we would need for a long trip for 30 days on a continent that we're not used to in the winter, like, do I have the cords that I need and the chargers that I need? And what about my toiletries? And what about gifts for other people? Like, there was a lot of stuff. And it took both of us to do it. Good thing, because I forgot lots of things, and she remembered many things that we needed. Well, this is what Paul's saying here. Look, you, you've, got this, you've got this weight. It's like you're going on a trip, but it's, it's a trip to, to heaven. It's, it's a long way there. It's going to be a while before Jesus gets back, maybe. But hey, don't worry because God's packed your bag for you. Only it's not just you. It's not like you by yourself have all the gifts you need. It's we. Together, we have been given everything we need on this long journey so that together we all get there. We're not lacking anything here in the church that is needed as we wait for Jesus' return. And of course, that's another piece of evidence that confirms their their common testimony, right? What are they they doing with their lives? What have they oriented their lives around? They're no longer orienting orienting their lives around the things most people do, like, like the weekend or vacation or retirement or getting ahead at work or that next drink or that next hit. No, their hopes are set on the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, the day of his return, when he makes all things new. Christian, it's not just our gifts, but it's how we use those gifts. It's, It's our lives that are the best evidence for the truth of the gospel not just individually, but together. Our life together as a local church 
confirms the truth of the testimony about Jesus and the truth of his gospel. This is why, you know, you've heard me say again and again, it's the local church that is God's program for world evangelization. It's not parachurch ministries. It's, it's not all sorts of other things that you might give yourself to. It is the local church. If you want to hear somebody else other than me talk about this, you could listen to the, the, um, the episode of Disciple Henson that just dropped today, where Daniel interviews Neil on our missions strategy. At which, and, and Neil makes the point that the local church is at the heart of that. It is the local church that is God's program for world evangelization not the four spiritual laws or the three circles. Not EE or T4T. Not your favorite tract or mission agency. God's evidence for the truth of something that we cannot see, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God right now as the Savior and Judge of the world. We can't see that, but his evidence for something that we cannot see is something that everyone can see the local church, and the transformed and gifted lives of the people that make up each of those churches. Friends, this is one of the reasons that if you're not a member of a local church and you claim to be a Christian, you should be. Because if you're not a member of a local church, you are missing out on the main action that God is doing to to bring the world to Christ. This is why we, we pay attention here to things like church membership, or church, it's why we practice church discipline. Our lives individually, and just as importantly, our lives collectively together should give evidence, compelling evidence, that Jesus changes sinners. Now, that that doesn't say that, that, that the evidence is perfect, but it should be evident right? And if that evidence isn't visible to us on the inside, how will it be visible to the people who really need to see it? The people on the outside who still need to be convinced so that they will call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Paul is excited about the Corinthians because the testimony of the gospel has been confirmed through the testimony of their lives. And I got to say, it's the thing that I missed most about you, Vincent. This is what I'm most excited about, about my local church, our local church. It's the way I see week in and week out, the way your lives individually and together give evidence to the truth of the gospel. When, when, when somebody like, like Bon uh, says to, to somebody like Jim, hey, I'd like, to, I'd like to help you out in visiting some of the older members of the church. I mean, he's got a full-time job. He didn't need to do that. That's the evidence of the Spirit at work in him. Or, or the way I, I've, I've heard here recently, some of you have banded together to do this uh, stay and play for moms, both to encourage one another, but also as a way to, to reach out maybe to, to other women in our neighborhood or women that we know. The way I've heard story after story of our small groups rallying around members who are in pain, who are in need, who are grieving, 
or struggling. Friends, all of this is evidence that the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in our midst because it's reoriented your lives away from just serving yourselves to actually serving and loving one another as we wait for Jesus to return. I think this is what I missed most about sabbatical. Seeing animals in Africa was really cool. Animals come and go. You, Henson, you are the evidence for me that the gospel's true and that I should continue to put my faith in that gospel as I watch you live it out together. Well, Paul's not just thankful for the grace that they've already received. I told you in verses four to nine, there are two reasons that he gives. He's, he's also thankful because of the grace that they're going to receive. And that's the third thing Paul highlights, our common future. Look at verse eight. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God has not only given the Corinthians and given all Christians the, the, the grace that, that changes us. He's also, Paul says, giving them grace that strengthens them for the future. Now that word strengthen is actually the same word that in verse six was translated confirmed. There's a, there's a word play going on here. Just as their grace-transformed lives confirmed the gospel, God is going to confirm or establish them to the very end. So that when judgment day comes, they will be found blameless. Verse 8. Now, I don't know about you, but this, this struck me as strange. It might even strike you as presumptuous. It's one thing for Paul to be thankful for something that's already happened, something that he can see. He can see the evidence of their changed lives. How can, how can he be thankful for something that hasn't even happened yet? Their, their perseverance to the end. Their, their acquittal on judgment day. Well, he tells us in verse 9, God is faithful. God is faithful. Having called us into fellowship with his son, he's not now going to fail to keep all the promises that he made to us through the son. Now, we've seen all the way through here that, that Paul actually isn't calling attention to the things that the Corinthians have done that makes him so thankful. Like, like, like what, what really matters about them, it turns out, isn't them. <laughs> what really matters about them is what God is doing. And here again, the same God who sovereignly calls us to himself, the same God who powerfully changes us by his grace is the God who sovereignly keeps us for himself to the end. Our confidence as Christians is not in our ability. It's not in our faithfulness. It's not even in our sort of progression in holiness as we see ourselves getting better and better. No, our confidence is in God's character. He is faithful. 
Brothers and sisters, knowing that we have a common future, which Paul describes here as being blameless on the day of the Lord, that should not only encourage you to persevere to the end, I think it should encourage us to persevere with each other to the end, or at least until next Sunday. Uh, Traveling this summer, there were things about it that were really miserable. I'm sure you've read, maybe you traveled yourself or you've read about how miserable it is flying. Definitely the low point of the whole trip was uh, like a long 10 hours at Heathrow Airport. Not the most pleasant place in the world. It's where I celebrated my 32nd anniversary this year in in a lounge at Heathrow. And you know, in those, in those circumstances where things are not going the way you want them to go and people aren't treating the way they want, you want them to treat you, it is very easy to speak to people in such a way that you wouldn't speak to them if you knew you had to be with them again tomorrow. Have you ever had that experience? Look around. Look around at your fellow church members. Not only are you going to see them tomorrow and next Sunday, next week and next year. Because God is faithful, you're going to see them on Judgment Day. And more to the point, the very first day of eternity and every day after that. God has promised to strengthen us to the end. A really practical takeaway from that is perhaps realizing that You know, whatever's frustrating you about your fellow church members today, that is not the last word about them. So it probably shouldn't be your present word about them. The last word is blameless. And that should affect our words and our attitudes about each other today. That should encourage and empower our patience with one another. It should encourage and empower our ability to forgive one another, to persevere with one another. Because we know that the last word on one another is not the words that we speak today, but the word that God has spoken in Christ. Blameless. What really matters about us as a church is what we have in common. A common calling, a common testimony, a common future. But fourth and finally, what matters most is that we have a common Lord. Look again at verse 9. Really the second half of verse 9. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I don't know if you noticed how often these words were repeated. We've just got nine short verses, but nine times in nine verses, Paul refers to Jesus Christ, or sometimes he flips it and it's Christ Jesus, or sometimes it's just Christ. But six of those times, he's also referred to as Lord, or even our Lord. Twice in verse two, and again in verse three, in verse seven, in verse eight, and verse nine. Again and again, Paul has emphasized what God the Father and God the Son have sovereignly done that has caused him to be thankful 
for the Corinthians. But as he concludes, he grounds all of it in the fact that we have been brought into fellowship with God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's our allegiance and submission to this Lord that binds us together as a church. It's his word that called us to himself and that now rules over us. It's his grace that has enriched us in every spiritual gift and has transformed our lives. It's his strength that keeps us safe to the end. And that is who we have fellowship with. To have fellowship is not to eat a potluck in the community hall. It's not to stand around after church talking together. Those are great things. To have fellowship is to have something in common. The word is koinonia. It is to to participate and to, to partner together in something. I know you already know this, but let me just remind you again, Henson Baptist Church, our fellowship, what we have in common and what ultimately unites us is our participation together in Jesus Christ. His grace, his love, his strength, his gifts, his call. Our unity is not in our common activity. Our unity is not in the fact that we think the same way about all sorts of secondary matters. Our unity is in a person. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's so easy to forget that, isn't it? As we interact with one another, persons that we don't agree with on this, that, or the other thing. We need to remember that our unity was never in those things in the first place. It was always, has always been, and will always be in Jesus. As I read the obituary this week of Queen Elizabeth II, I was struck by how she, in fact, became a source of unity for Britain and even the Commonwealth. Despite the great distance being queen entails, a distance that, frankly, she very carefully and wisely maintained, Elizabeth emphasized again and again what she had in common with her subjects. A sense of duty and responsibility, a sharing in their suffering, a concern for their welfare. As a young princess, 21 years old, she declared in a radio address to the empire, my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong but I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me, as I now invite you to do. Ten years after that, five years into her reign as queen, she put it even more eloquently. She said, I cannot lead you into battle. I do not give you laws or administer justice, but I can do something else. I can give you my heart. If Elizabeth, a mere mortal, and let's face it, ceremonial queen, could give her people unity, 
by faithfully giving herself to her people. How much more the Son of God and Lord of all. What really matters is what we have in common and what we have in common is Jesus Christ, our Lord. United we stand in fellowship with him. And that is enough. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment. And consider the ways in which, maybe in your own life, you have not been seeking unity and the fellowship that we have in Jesus Christ. I just confess that to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd forgive us for taking our eyes off Jesus and putting them on ourselves thinking too much of ourselves, thinking that our discipleship, our confession of you has something to do with us. Lord, Lord forgive us for, for thinking that our testimony to Christ could be demonstrated by anything other than a unity in Christ and a fellowship with him. But we pray that you would set our eyes firmly on Jesus, that our hope would be there, that our faith and trust would be in him alone, and that that would transform the way we speak and live and love one another, that the truth of the gospel might be confirmed among us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.